Section One of Diary of a U-Boat Commander. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Diary of a U-Boat Commander by Stephen King Hall of the Royal Navy. Introduction. I would ask you a favor," said the German captain, as we sat in the cabin of a U-boat which had just been added to the long line of bedraggled captives which stretched themselves for a mile or more in Harwich Harbor in November 1918. I made no reply. I had just granted him a favor by allowing him to leave the upper deck of the submarine, in order that he might await the motor launch in some sort of privacy. Why should he ask for more? Undeterred by my silence, he continued, "'I have a great friend, Lieutenant Zutzi von Schenk, who brought U-122 over last week. He has lost a diary, quite private. He left it in error. Can he have it?' I deliberated, felt a certain pity, then remembered the Belgian prince and other things, and so, looking the German in the face, I said, "'I can do nothing.' please i shook my head then to my astonishment the german placed his head in his hands and wept his massive frame for he was a very big man shook in irregular spasms it was a most extraordinary spectacle it seemed to me absurd that a man who had suffered without visible emotion the monstrous humiliation of handing over his command intact should break down over a trivial incident concerning a diary, and not even his own diary, and yet there was this man crying openly before me. It rather impressed me, and I felt a curious shyness at being present, as if I had stumbled accidentally into some private recess of his mind. I closed the cabin door, for I heard the voices of my crew approaching. He wept for some time, perhaps ten minutes and I wished very much to know of what he was thinking, but I couldn't imagine how it would be possible to find out. I think that my behavior in connection with his friend's diary added the last necessary drop of water to the floods of emotion which he had striven, and striven successfully, to hold in check during the agony of handing over the boat, and now the dam had crumbled and broken away. It struck me that, down in the brilliantly lit, stuffy little cabin, the result of the war was epitomized. On the table were some instruments I had forbidden him to remove, but which my first lieutenant had discovered in the engineer officer's bag. On the settee lay a cheap imitation leather suitcase containing his spare clothes and a few books. At the table sat Germany in defeat, weeping, but not the tears of repentance, rather the tears of bitter regret for humiliations undergone and ambitions unrealized. We did not speak again, for I heard the launch come alongside, and, as she bumped against the U-boat, the noise echoed through the hull into the cabin, and aroused him from his sorrows. He wiped his eyes, and with an attempt at his former hardiness, he followed me on deck, and boarded the motor launch. Next day I visited U-122, and these papers are presented to the public with such additional remarks as seemed desirable, 
for some curious reason the author seems to have omitted nearly all dates. This may have been due to the fear that the book, if captured, would be of great value to the British Intelligence Department, if the entries were dated. The papers are in the form of two volumes in black leather binding, with a long letter inside the cover of the second volume. Internal evidence has permitted me to add the dates as regard the years. My thanks are due to my friend K for assistance in translation. Signed, Etienne. The Diary of a U-Boat Commander One volume of my war journal completed, and I must confess it is dull reading. I could not help smiling as I read my enthusiastic remarks at the outbreak of war, when we visualized battles by the week. What a contrast between our expectations and the actual facts! Months of monotony, and I haven't even seen an Englishman yet. Our battle-cruisers have had a little amusement with the coast raids at Scarborough and elsewhere, but we battle-fleet fellows have seen nothing, and done nothing. So I have decided to volunteer for the U-boat service, and my name went in last week, though I am told it may be months before I am taken, as there are about two hundred and fifty lieutenants already on the waiting list. But sooner or later I suppose something will come of it. I shall have no cause to complain of inactivity in that service if I get there. New Entry I am off tonight for a six days' trip two days of which are to be spent in the train, to the Verdun sector. It has been a great piece of luck. The trip has been arranged by the Military and Naval Intercommunication Department, and two officers from this squadron were to go. There were one hundred and thirty candidates, so we drew lots. As usual, I was lucky, and drew one of the two chances. It should be intensely interesting. New Entry At Place Deleted I arrived here last night after a slow and tiresome journey, which was somewhat alleviated by an excellent bottle of French wine which I purchased whilst in the Champagne district. Long before we reached the vicinity of Verdun it was obvious to the most casual observer that we were heading for a centre of unusual activity. Hospital trains travelling northeast and east were numerous, and twice our train, which was one of the ordinary military trains, was shunted on to a siding to allow troop-trains to rumble past. As we approached Verdun, the noise of artillery, which I had heard distantly once or twice during the day, as the casual railway train approached the front, became more intense, and grew from a low murmur into a steady noise of a kind of growling description, punctuated at irregular intervals by very deep booms as some especially heavy piece was discharged, or an ammunition dump went up. The country here is very different from the mud-flats of Flanders, as it is hilly and well-wooded. The Meuse, in the course of centuries, has cut its way through the rampart of hills which surround Verdun, and we are attacking the place from three directions. On the north we are slowly forcing the French back on either river-bank, a very costly proceeding as each wing must advance an equal amount, or the one that advances is enfiladed from across the river. We are also slowly creeping forward from the east and northeast in the direction of Douaumont. I am attached to a 105-centimeter battery. A young Major von Markel 
in command, a most charming fellow. I spent all day to-day in the advanced observing position with a young subaltern called Grable, also a nice young fellow. I was in position at 6 a.m., and, as apparently is common here, mist hides everything from view until the sun attains a certain strength. Our battery was supporting the attack on the north side of the river, though the battery itself was on the south side and firing over a hill called Lum Moor. Von Markel told me that the fighting here had not been previously equalled in the war. Such is the intensity of the combat, and the price each side is paying. I could see for myself that this was so, and the whole atmosphere of the place is pregnant with the supreme importance of this struggle, which may well be the dying convulsions of decadent France. His Imperial Majesty himself has arrived on the scene to witness the final triumph of our arms, and all agree that the end is imminent. Once we get Verdun, it is the general opinion that this portion of the French front will break completely, carrying with it the adjacent sectors, and the French armies in the Vosges and the Argonne will be committed to a general retreat on converging lines. But, favourable as this would be to us, it is generally considered here that the fall of Verdun will break the moral resistance of the French nation. The feeling is that infinitely more is involved than the capture of a French town, or even the destruction of a French army. It is a question of stamina. It is the climax of the World War, the focal point of the colossal struggle between the Latin and the Teuton, and on the battlefields of Verdun the gods will decide the destinies of nations. When I got to the forward-observing position, which was situated among the ruins of a house, a most amazing noise made conversation difficult. The orchestra was in full blast, and something approaching twelve thousand pieces of all sizes were in action on our side alone, this being the greatest artillery concentration yet effected during the war. We were situated on one side of a valley which ran up at right angles to the river, whose actual course was hidden by mist, which also obscured the bottom of our valley. The front line was down in this little valley, and as I arrived we lifted our barrage on to the far hillside to cover an attack which we were delivering at dawn. Nothing could be seen of the conflict down below, but after half an hour we received orders to bring back our barrage again, and Grable informed me that the attack had evidently failed. This afternoon I heard that it was indeed so, and that one division, the 58th, which had tried to work along the river bank and outflank the hill, had been caught by a concentration of six batteries of French 75s, which were situated across the river. The unfortunate 58th, forced back from the riverside, had heroically fought their way up the side of the hill, only to encounter our barrage, which, owing to the mist, we thought was well above and ahead of where they would be. Under this fresh blow the 58th had retired to their trenches at the bottom of the small valley. As the day warmed up the mist disappeared, and, like a theatre curtain, the lifting of this veil revealed the whole scene in its terrible and yet mechanical splendour. I say mechanical, for it all seemed unreal to me. I knew I should not see cavalry charges, guns in the open, and all the old-world panoply of war but I was not prepared for this barren and shell-torn circle of hills, 
continually being freshly, and to an uninformed observer, aimlessly lashed by shell-fire. Not a man in sight, though below us the ground was thickly strewn with corpses. Overhead a few aeroplanes circled round amidst balls of white shell-bursts. During the day the slow-circling aeroplanes, which were artillery observing machines, were galvanized into frightful activity by the sudden appearance of a fighting machine on one side or the other. This happened several times. It reminded me of a pike amongst young trout. After lunch I saw a spad shot down in flames. It was like Lucifer falling down from high heavens. The whole scene was inframed by a sluggish line of observation balloons. Sometimes groups of these would hastily sink to earth, to rise again when the menace of the aeroplane had passed. These balloons seemed more like phlegmatic spectators at some athletic contest than actual participants in the events. I wish my pen could convey to paper the varied impressions created within my mind in the course of the past day, but it cannot. I have the consolation that, though I think that I have considerable ability as a writer, yet abler pens than mine have abandoned in despair the task of describing a modern battle. I can but reiterate that the dominant impression that remains is of the mechanical nature of this business of modern war, and yet such an impression is a false one, for as in the past, so to-day, and so in the future, it is the human element which is, has been, and will be the foundation of all things. Once only in the course of the day did I see men in any numbers, and that was when, at three p.m., the French were detected massing for a counter-attack on the south side of the river. It was doomed to be stillborn. As they left their trenches, distant pygmy figures in horizon blue, apparently plodding slowly across the ground, they were lashed by an intensive barrage, and the little figures were obliterated in a series of spouting shell-bursts. Five minutes later the barrage ceased, the smoke drifted away, and not a man was to be seen. Grable told me that it had probably cost them seven hundred and fifty casualties. What an amazing and efficient destruction of living organisms! New Entry Another most interesting day, though of a different nature. Today was spent witnessing the arrangements for dealing with the wounded. I spent the morning at an advanced dressing station on the south bank of the river. It was in a cellar, beneath the ruins of a house, about four hundred yards from the front line and under heavy shell-fire, as close at hand was the remains of what had been a wood, which was being used as a concentration point for reserves. The cover afforded by this so-called wood was extremely slight and the troops were concentrating for the innumerable attacks and counter-attacks which were taking place under shell-fire. This caused the surgeon in charge of the cellar to describe the wood as our main supply station. I entered the cellar at 8 a.m., taking advantage of a partial lull in the shelling, but a machine-gun bullet viciously flipped into a wooden beam at the entrance as I ducked to go in. I was not sorry to get underground. A sloping path brought me into the cellar, on one side of which sappers were digging away the earth to increase the accommodation. The illumination consisted of candles set in bottles, and some electric hand-lamps. The centre of the cellar was occupied by two portable operating-tables, rarely untenanted, 
during the three hours I spent in this hell. The atmosphere, for there was no ventilation, stank of sweat, blood, and chloroform. By a powerful effort I countered my natural tendency to vomit, and looked around me. The sides of the cellar were lined with figures on stretchers. Some lay still and silent, others writhed and groaned. At intervals one of the attendants would call the doctor's attention to one of the still forms. A hasty examination ensued, and the stretcher and its contents were removed. A few minutes later the stretcher, empty, returned. The surgeon explained to me that there was no room for corpses in the cellar. Business, he genially remarked, was too brisk at the present crucial stage of the great battle. The first feelings of revulsion having been mastered, I determined to make the most of my opportunities, as I have always felt that the naval officer is at a great disadvantage in war, as compared with his military brother, in that he but rarely has a chance of accustoming himself to the unpleasant spectacle of torn flesh and bones. This morning there was no lack of material, and many of the intestinal wounds were peculiarly revolting, so that at lunchtime, when another convenient lull in the torrent of shell-fire enabled me to leave the cellar, I felt thoroughly hardened. In fact, I had assisted in a humble degree at one or two operations. I had lunch at the Eleventh Army Medical Headquarters Mess, and it was a sumptuous meal to which I did full justice. After lunch, whilst waiting to be motored to a field hospital, I happened to see a battalion of Silesian troops about to go up to the front line. It was rather curious feeling that one was looking at men, each in himself a unit of civilization, and yet many of whom were about to die in the interest thereof. Their faces were an interesting study. Some looked careless and debonair, and seemed to swing past with a touch of recklessness in their stride. Others were grave and serious, and seemed almost to plod forward to the dictates of an inevitable fatalism. The field hospital, where we met some very charming nurses, on one of whom I think I created a distinct impression, was not particularly interesting. It was clean, well organized, and radiated the efficiency inseparable from the German army. New Entry Back at Wilhelmshaven, curse it! Yesterday morning, when about to start on a tour of the ammunition supply arrangements, I received an urgent wire recalling me at once. There was nothing for it but to obey. I was lucky enough to get a passage as far as Mont in an albatross scout which was taking dispatches to that place. From there I managed to bluff a motor-car out of the town commandant, a most obliging fellow. This took me to Aachen, where I got an express. The reason for my recall was that Witneiser went sick, and Arnheim being away, this has left only two in the operations ciphering department. My arrival has made us three. It is pretty strenuous work, and, being of a clerical nature, suits me little. The only consolation is that many of the messages are most interesting. I was looking through the back files the other day, and amongst other interesting information, I came across the wireless report from the boat that had sunk the Lusitania. It has always been a mystery to me why we sank her, as I do not believe those things pay. New Entry Arnheim has come back, so I have got out of the ciphering department 
to my great delight. I have received official information that my application for U-boats has been received. Meanwhile, all there is to do is to sit at this hole and wait. End of section one.